0: Hi, this is Max Rivlin-Adler, and you're listening to the Full Stop Podcast. As always, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making this possible, and receiving the perk of getting this episode a bit earlier than our other listeners. Full Stop relies on your support to flourish and grow. We're working on a ton of new and interesting projects, so your support is going a long way. And as always, directly to the writers and artists who make Full Stop possible, thank you so much. Our website continues to be updated multiple times a week with reviews, essays, and interviews, so please check it out. Last month, we also published a brand new issue of our reviews supplement. It includes a special feature on the aesthetics of black and queer relationality. The essays and interviews in that feature optimistically find in instances of black art and in black life, practices of world building. They attest that such worlds are built not only in works of black art, but around them, in the social relations that give them form, and that they give form too, in long conversations, in letters exchanged, in the proximity of sweaty clubs and houses of prayer, in subcultures large and small, flourishing in the cracks of the oppressively present world. You definitely want to give this issue a read. To get the latest issue of our review supplement, download a copy at our Gumroad shop, or subscribe by supporting our Patreon. This month on the podcast, we're featuring an interview between fiction writer and critic Greg Gerke and writer and editor Gabriel Blackwell. Gerke's essay, An Adultery, ran in full stop this past fall, and he's the author of See What I See, a book of essays and especially The Bad Things Stories, which were both published by Splice. An expanded version of See What I See is out now. Blackwell is the author most recently of Correction, which contains 100 short story essays or something approaching that. It's pretty experimental. I'll let them take it from here.
1: Hello, this is Greg Gurky. And I'm Gabriel Blackwell. And thank you for tuning into our conversation. We're gonna read uh, very quickly from books we have. And my book is called See What I See, uh, Essays. Book of essays from Zero Gram Press. And it is uh, essays about film, literature, and life. And I'm going to read just quickly the beginning of one called On Being Looked At. I don't always like to be looked at an unfortunates not always serving me well in romantic relationships. But this is not worse than it sounds. I could carry a malady, burns, scars, dislocations, deformities. Luckily, I am nondescript if not tall. Surely the psychodynamics around this preference must have something to do with approaching 300 pounds at age 19. The therapists would say, and I agree, that we often retain the set of inhibitors that that were given so much electricity when we were big that the charge doesn't altogether exit our bodies in the year's housing a fitter frame. Still, time has passed, lives have changed, and one must begin the inquiry with one's location. I don't admire people who talk about Brooklyn in in any casually determined, casually determinate way. Damn it, I live here. Yes, it's what it is if you abide, something quite else if you see it on TV or read about all the epithets directed at it online or in newsprint. There are three different Brooklyns, and I have no truck with the Williamsburg and Greenpoint youngins. I acknowledge and celebrate my status as not age-appropriate for those quadrants places where foxy gins funny little rock lyric there's no need to be an asshole you're not in brooklyn anymore was probably aimed after too many bewildering days and nights atop its streets holding many layers of unswept construction dust Bedsty had gotten well eaten up by developers 15 years ago and i don't see it much today though i know Hot new restaurants open there every week. Coney Island, Sheepshead Bay, and Bay Ridge are distant lands with surf and turf, but I don't like straight beach and it doesn't like me. The neighborhoods branching out from the Brooklyn Bridge don't really nuzzle against each other like those in Manhattan, where Chinatown suddenly becomes Little Italy after you overstep a discarded pizza crust. But wait, Two turns, and now it is Soho, and there's William Willem Defoe, shorter in real life. My neighborhood park slope is crack cocaine to fan- fantasies of raising children by its more gentrified side of the park and inside its coveted schools, where people maintain an equipoise with a modicum of granola but will flail and flounder of their own brew with the curtains closed or under the pillow, changing the course of their blood by whatever chosen substance, just as persons in Duluth might. The people who shit on Park Slope do so because they can't order the contumely one feels in Soho, where an outsider only exists to be envying the ungainly and over stars and moneymakers who live in the great towers of high security. You aren't necessarily excluded in Park Slope, though I recall dozens of Craigslist ads for roommates 15 years ago where men were explicitly told not to apply. You're just not to be too vocal about what a charade everything is while leaving room for stroller parking. And we'll go over to Gabe now.
2: Yeah, so I'm going to read from uh, Correction, which will be out from Rescue Press in April uh, of 2021. And since Greg, since you read a piece about where you are, um, I thought originally I had another piece picked out to read, but I think I'll read this one uh, from very early in the book called Blue Light, uh, which is about the place where uh, where Correction was written, uh, which is the the panhandle of, of Florida. Our neighbor, my wife and I had once agreed, was a nice enough person. We had not until then noticed the blue light on his porch. Maybe it was that we'd always walked in the opposite direction in the evenings. Now, it was plain as day. His wife drives a Prius, we told each other. How bad could he really be? But then we started seeing things we hadn't seen before. Next to the chair on the deck where he smoked in the mornings and afternoons, there was a cheap disposable lighter wrapped in the flag. My wife said there might have been a cross on it, too, though I don't know how she could have seen such a thing so far away. The cardboard box left in a corner of the backyard long ago filled with leaves and other debris had we now saw once-held goods from the national chain of big-box stores that had recently sued the federal government for requiring them to cover birth control for their employees rather than, as we thought, the national chain of big-box stores that had recently announced its policy of allowing customers and employees to use the bathroom of their choice. He had, my wife said, she'd seen once day. Uh, one day, the eagle, globe, and anchor tattooed on his upper bicep, though we agreed he didn't really seem the type. The widescreen TV filling the front window, which we'd always assumed had been playing the cable news channel typically shown in airports and doctor's offices, now definitely seemed to be playing the cable news channel typically shown in sports bars and chain restaurants. We talked about what we'd heard, what we'd seen. I thought, my wife told me, when he said they were good at landscaping, he'd met the company, but now I'm not so sure. I told my wife I remembered saying something dismissive about the so-called controversy over the national coffee chain's decision to use plain red cups in place of more traditionally holiday-themed cups. And I remembered our neighbor hadn't responded. And really that had been, as best as I could recall, the last time we talked, just before the election. When we, say, when we saw our neighbor on the news then, It was not as much of a surprise as it would have been when there was still a surprise to see him in the small group of red-capped men holding semi-automatic rifles outside the local library, protesting the protest going on at the park across the street where the unarmed schizophrenic had been shot by police the day before. The reporter was asking the man to our neighbor's left what he and the other men were doing, and the man was replying, keeping America safe from these animals. I heard later from a friend, a library assistant, that story time had had to be canceled that day, and that parents had complained about the security at the library. I don't like the thought of that being next door, my wife told me from her spot on the couch, meaning I guessed the rifle. I switched the channel to the Crime Scene Investigation show's newest spinoff, and we both went back to staring at our devices. So, Greg, I did something with your book, with See What I See, that I don't often do with books, which is that I mm-hmm. reread it, <laughs> uh, and I think you know I always want to reread books, and I always think rereading books is is a good thing to do, but somehow I never find the time to do it, and it seems to me that both of those are things that you address in "See What I See," uh, so in the essay "How to Live, What to Read," you write. When one starts reading essays pointing to other works one should read, one compounds an already compelling problem. And the compelling problem is, of course, one that that I share, uh, which is just having far too much to read. Um, And then elsewhere in the book, you call yourself a page hugger, someone who lingers in writing. And um, and you talk about the slowness with which you read things. Uh, But you also, in this interesting tension, write about rereading and the pleasures of rereading. And so I wanted to start our discussion, our conversation, uh, by asking if, uh, would you please talk a little about why uh, you reread and um, and maybe even how you choose what to reread?
1: Uh-huh. Um, well, we I should say that the book was... Published uh, by Splice uh, two years ago now, so this is a, a slightly different version with um, six added essays. But I also redid the entire text. Um, rereading, yeah, it's it's it it's a strange pull. I think as I've gotten older, it's gotten stranger and stranger because, you know, there's so many things one wants to read, one wants to finish Proust and and read all the Faulkner, you know, or the Musil, the long book by him. And and so sometimes I wonder, uh, lately, uh, I went to a a bookstore on a a short trip about a month ago and, and bought a f- a few things that um that I've read a few times that I just didn't own and one of them was JM Coetzee's first uh autobiography and I say that in quotes because he kind of plays with it it's called uh actually it's the second one it's not boyhood it's called youth which is about his I think his 20s and 30s, let's say, uh, in England. And I've read that many times. I don't know, not many, but three times at least. And somehow I was just drawn to reading that again, even though I had many different books with me on this trip uh, that I was enjoying and that I'd never read before. But something just pulled me about going into that book again and not even from the beginning just reading passages about about, say his relationship to Henry James or Ezra Pound because the last time I read those I probably hadn't read you know too too much Pound or James so I was kind of re, re, re reviewing you know where Kotze has come from um, so I I think often I'll reread things to ignite my own writing because I, I kind of know it I mean I know it in a sense um, it's familiar so I guess it's it's so familiar that it's easy to ape <laughs> And, uh, I, I don't know if that's the best way to write, but not that I'm directly aping the styles, but I think reading something I know just turns a switch in me quicker. If I'm, if I'm trying to find the muse, let's say, and, uh, often that will, um, get me to reread things though I I just reread the bear by William Faulkner. uh, But that was because I had read it outside of the novel it was put in. And there's a whole scattered history to it. Um, But it's quite something different when you read it within the novel, uh, than when you read it by itself. And it's often anthologized like that. Um, But just to wrap up, yeah, less I read, -read, reread, reread less and less these days. um, Probably because there's just so much to read. I, where where do you stand on these issues, Gabe?
2: Well, I you know I was thinking about it in part because I did reread your book. Um, I read the original. Pub uh, the original printing uh, from Splice um, and then read this <laughs> new one uh, but I think actually it was because I was thinking and I'm not sure where this train of thought came from but I was thinking that there are books that I really that didn't make an impression on me or that I didn't much care for when I first read them that have uh, with time become very important books to me and obviously, because I reread them, um, and and I do wonder um, this this is sort of uh, uh, psychoanalyzing, maybe, but uh, I, I do wonder uh, how many books I'm missing just because you know I read them and I think well that's really nothing special and uh, never return to them. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, it's I I don't know exactly why I had the reaction I did, but I read uh, Lydia Davis's first collection in graduate school and and honestly thought I, I don't know why my mentor told me i should read this um and then you know subsequently uh, davis has become uh, a kind of lodestar for me someone whose work that i return to often uh that would just be one example uh, of something that i've reread and and discovered a um discovered appreciation that wasn't there before but but discovered sort of a uh you know, an importance in the work, um, that I hadn't suspected in my first read. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: And, and I wonder, I, my second question is sort of related to, to that in fact, uh, which is that you, you describe yourself as a page hugger. And I was wondering if you would talk just a little bit about being a page hugger and uh, how that affects, uh, your criticism. That is uh-huh. your, your writing of criticism, I should say.
1: Well, the term is from Gary, Gary L. Lutz, a uh, page hugger as opposed to a page turner. And I think w- why I zero in on that is because I read or I have read a lot of poetry. And I think poetry. One really has to go back and back and back and reread poems um but also um i there when you when you read something so rich you know like Henry James or Patrick White, which I mentioned in that in the book there's this short essay on him and there's just something about you you don't for me I feel I don't want to to leave the the book to leave you know certain pages they, they leave they the pages leave such a strong impression that uh you know I'm often while I'm going ahead and continuing to read I'm recalling you know the sentence or paragraph from two pages back three pages back and just kind of thinking about it as I continue to read so there's this weird retrograde effect because I'm, I'm in two places at once so it I should stop reading I should go back and often when I'm reading critically you know I'll mark you know page 35 and the, and the beginning of the sentence to to the end um in in notes so there when when something just makes such a strong impression it it kind of stays with me more than the story and i and i think maybe you, you read like this too i i know there's a group of people that that, that do um and in terms of criticism uh i think it's borne out in, in the type of criticism I've written in the past few years where wherein I'll just you know use a very uh inductive method and start with something small like this uh, you know a paragraph of of William Gaddis's Carpenter's Gothic, or the Patrick White piece. I mean, I hadn't even finished that book when I read wrote that essay on Patrick White, for instance. I mean, this is the type of thing, you know, the, I guess this is page hugging to the extreme that you, you, you hug the page so much that you don't even finish the book. Uh, and that's what happened. And in fact, I still haven't Finish that book, even though I did read much more. It's it's a very long book. Um, I think I'm ninety pages from the end. Uh, so that I'll examine, you know, short bursts rather than do the whole, the, the long, long viewed, looking for themes and, and and doing that. I think my method, if I have one, is is more to look. At uh, short sections and expound from that. yeah um, um.
2: I and I appreciate that approach because and and I don't want to generalize too much so I'll just speak about see what I see. Um, the results it seems to me are themselves very rich. you know the the, the essays that you've written in response to these works are themselves, worth hugging, worth, worth sort of staying with. The, you know, there's a density of language there that's not it's not commonly found in, you know, for instance, the New York Times book review or something, um, where where I guess the sort of flip side of what you're describing, the looking towards themes and, and the sort of larger issues predominates.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let me turn to your book. Um, and this I'm, I'm gonna talk mostly about correction, even though ba- Babel is just came out in November. <laughs> you you've had two books come out within a half a year of each other. Um, and kind of just bear with me on this first question. I, I know it's it's a little longish, but I wanted to maybe get it in. There's there's been a lot of dust-ups about auto fiction lately. And because you tweet so little, um, I remember a tweet (laughs) that you made about correction, this book, uh, when uh, I think you'd completed it, where you said something like uh, these 101 stories or essays slash essays were composed in a perpetual state of anger and anxiety. And I think that definitely comes through in the book Uh, and some of the stories that are plainly uh, pointed at the last four or five years of American life uh, with, you know, the obvious person who who don't we don't need to name the mass shootings, the madness, the social media mishaps. um, And this was a very hard time for everyone and for me. And and reading some of these, uh, I didn't want to go back into that time. And I, and I felt like it was taking me back into that time. And I know that this time is still going on. Uh, it's not ended by any means. Um, so maybe if you can uh, talk about the form of the book uh, as a... As a long-term reader of your work, I know your, uh, your work often straddles the line between fiction and essay, and I think that's become more pronounced since Madeline E., the book uh, just before these last two came out. And and just to add on, to circle back to the autofiction, and that's a term that's pregnant with so many connotations that it's almost Meaningless, uh, you know. There's nothing of the standard. There's nothing of the standard U.S. style autofiction in your books. I w- I would say for me, um, uh, and I think William Gaddis def- defined what we might call autofiction very well. Like it, it seemed like uh, the writer was deliberately writing as a memoir to make it more real and to gain more audience sympathy um but you know in your writing there seems to be more a sense that uh that that when you write you don't know where you're going i might be making this up in the in the your style of writing that it's you start somewhere but maybe you don't have any determined end uh that's the sense i got but if I know this is a very long winded question, but if, what do you, do you have any thoughts on all of that?
2: Of course. Uh, so I began writing correction um, the morning after the election in 2016. Uh, mm. But, but I started, I, I had this idea prior to that. And, and I think the election was a, was a sort of precipitant. Uh, or an accelerant, I guess. Um, But I had this idea that I would write The Thousand and One Nights um, because that book and The Decameron and Don Quixote and uh, Canterbury Tales and those kinds of uh, sort of proto-novels were how I got interested in writing. And I wanted to do something along those lines. You know, I liked sort of omnibus collecting tales that are contemporary at the time. Uh, I liked that form, but um, but I'm also not ambitious. And so I thought I can't possibly write a thousand and one stories uh, or even collect a thousand and one stories. So I'll just do a hundred and one. And I thought um, at the time uh, that I would do one a week. Um, and this kind of goes against, because I think um, my memory is not perfect, but I think that your use of uh, the term page hugger, uh, does that come from the sentence is a lonely place or is it mentioned in that essay? Yes, it's, it's from there. So, so the uh, Lutz's essay, The Sentence is a Lonely Place, which was originally published in The Believer uh, many years ago, um, it, it talks about being a page hugger. And I think it talks specifically about uh, writers being kind of afraid to stay in a sentence and and wanting to jump to the next sentence, essentially to kind of advance the plot at the expense of taking some time to live with the language one is using, and so um, for me, uh, correction both stays with sentences, but is but is you know in terms of its generation, it was very eager to jump ahead to the next thing, and so I set myself. Uh, a few rules or constraints that I knew I would follow while writing this book. And one was that I would start a new story every week. And so I would I would spend a week writing one story and then the next week I would start a new story and spend that week working on that story. And so Correction was all composed um, within the first two years. So the the morning after the election in 2016 all the way to November of 2018. Um, and, and my idea was that actually I wanted it to be, I don't know, representative or, you know, I wanted it to be of its time um, because I thought that there was something something valuable, valuable about that. I think often writers are taught kind of, you know, to be timeless uh, or at least mm-hmm. that's a, a general trend right now is to be sort of um, unanchored by time and, and not to allow contemporary events to contaminate one's work and and I thought, no, that's that's exactly wrong. It, it's impossible, first of all, um, and and also I think that there's something there's something valuable in in sort of recording what's happening now. And so, by starting a new story every week, sort of necessarily, I ran out of ideas very quickly, and so I was re- relying on, well, what's in the news? What have I read about this week? What have I experienced this week? And so, you know, a, a lot of the a lot of the elements of the book come out of that. And of course I've done everything backwards in this answer. So a uh, correction for those listening is made up of 101 uh, very short texts. And, and so the, another one of my constraints was that I would not allow any of them to exceed two double-spaced pages, two double-spaced typed pages. And so once I got to two pages, that was the end. And I would need to mm-hmm. find some way to end that in a way that I thought was you know, at least potentially satisfying to the reader and, and to myself uh, as the writer. So um, so to, to just turn very quickly to to uh, the part of your question that had to do with autofiction, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't follow things on Twitter very <laughs> closely. And I've recently adopted a rule uh, that, that has helped me a great deal, which is just that as soon as I get angry, I immediately close Twitter and so that's why you don't see many tweets uh from me is because I get angry very quickly um and i, I recognize that as a uh, an emotion that I would prefer not to feel um so I you know I, I have a general idea that there is that there is a discourse about auto fiction but not
0: mm-hmm.
2: I don't know many of the ins and outs um in any case uh no I don't think I don't think of this book or or any of my work as as auto fiction but i'm also not entirely clear that that is a word that describes something one writes i think it is more a word that describes something one sells in other words it's it's a marketing technique more than it is um anything else sure
1: yeah and um uh, to expound on the book uh i when i as I read it, I broke it down into maybe three categories. There's uh, the meta, the metafictional writer uh, who who's writing stories. Then there are the the news pieces out of the out of the last those those years, um, and sometimes these two are mixed together. And then there are, are pieces that are about Books uh, or historical figures, like Flaubert, Schliemann, Wittgenstein, and ma- there's many of these in the last uh, twenty stories or so. Uh, and so I wondered about the, but you might have already answered this. I wondered about the ordering. Um, did as you did you write? Did you publish? The book in the order you you wrote it or uh and and also so you were thinking this would be a book from the beginning as you were writing these
2: one week at a time i think so i think so i I wasn't i I knew that it would be a project um Mm -hmm. so i knew that it had kind of a, a beginning and end um I don't think that I was ever, I don't think I'm ever confident that what I'm writing will, will be published, but I did think of it as, you know, these, these two years I'm going to write at least 101, and obviously, you know, if one does the math, one realizes I wrote some things that I did not include in the book because they just weren't good. You know, there, there were some weeks where I wrote terrible things that just should never be seen by other people, but, um, but I knew that it would be bounded in that way. Um, and in fact, I, I kept writing, I kept writing these, these very short things, um, but didn't include any that I'd written after November of 2018 in correction. Uh, so there, there was a kind of, um, a limit to it. Uh, as for the order, uh, no, they are not published in the same order that I wrote them. Um, -hmm. although I do think there, there may be a kind of, uh, I think maybe some of the earlier pieces in the book are some of the earlier things that I wrote. And likewise, some of the things towards the end of the book are things that I wrote towards the end of those two years. Um, But actually, I spent I spent some time reordering things uh, before I submitted it to the publisher, uh, Rescue Press. And then they had some notes. The editor there, Hilary Plum, had some notes about ordering. um, and, And so we moved a few things around. But. You know, mostly, I think my idea was a kind of uh, associative connection between each text and the next one. So, you know, there there was, at least in my mind, there was a connection between the first and the second text and the second and the third and so on and so forth all the way through. Um, But I didn't have any kind of grand uh, scheme for the book, and and I thought it would be really grating. To have, for instance, you know a whole bunch of the news items all together or a whole bunch of the uh, you know the fictions mm-hmm. together, uh, the sort of literary anecdotes together, I thought that would be that would get on one's nerves pretty quickly and so i I did consciously try to shuffle things around um, to that degree yeah I'm um, speaking about structure though i'm I am uh, uh, curious about see what I see hmm um, Can you talk just a little bit about how this book came to be a book?
1: Yeah, I never, it was not an idea of mine. It was uh, Daniel Davis Wood at Splice. He wondered about, did you ever think of collecting criticism that I'd written into a book? Well, no, I hadn't, but uh, well, I guess that's a good idea. And so we did that, but you know, as the book went on, it there, there became more and more of the memoir type pieces that I decided uh, should go in it to kind of change it, and, and in consultation with him. So it became more and more memoir, uh, or pieces that are not strictly criticism. Um, and I think for the the zero gram version I was able to include a few more that I think really iced it uh, about the, the, the certain themes or questions of the book the there's a lot about the you know the compositional self with William Gaddis uh, and also about how artists create, uh, or what they create, create out of, and I think I addressed that in the Hong Sang Soo, the the Korean filmmaker, uh, the whole thing about the T. S. Eliot, uh, escaping personality. Uh, so I'm I'm very glad that the, the book was able to get a second a second uh, version with with those things in because I was actually writing him while uh, the first book you know was going to press so there was there seemed to be um, those ideas were kind of still in motion as uh, the book was getting ready to go out and that I could uh, piece together a few more um, meant something. And I, I think th- there's a lot of critical books that that are just full of criticism. And <laughs> I mean, and, and there are a lot that aren't, like say the, the Jeff Dyer books, uh, which I think you're quite familiar with um but i i guess i'm i'm more in the dire mode than in the uh or the gassian mode i mean there's some memoir pieces in, in the gas books then say you know here's just here's my selected criticism from 2014 to 2018 uh I thought that would be too dry and it, it's just not me because I, you know, I tried to relate it to my life. So that's why, uh, that's how it came out.
2: There's a, there's a beautiful kind of like modulation to the book, uh, because the way it's structured, the first, uh, maybe 140 pages or so are, are devoted to you, your thoughts on, on literature. And then there's kind of an intermezzo of about 40 pages. Uh, there's these more sort of blatantly memori- memoiristic uh, pieces. And then you go into your thoughts on films. Um, mm-hmm. But but that last section, the film section, uh, it seems to me, and, and this may just be an impression born out of um, I, who knows what, but uh, I did feel as though the film section continued that strain of memoir. Uh, It was a a little bit stronger in the film criticism than it is in the literary criticism. Um, Not to say that those, the literary criticism is is completely devoid of, you know, details from your life, but, uh, but, but the book has a kind of um, almost like a turning point in the, in the middle section um, where, where things become much more personal uh, in, in a, in a really beautiful way. And, and, you know you're writing about these films that some of them i've seen but many of them i haven't in a way that's just extremely personal revealing i don't know it is um it's a refreshing refreshing uh take on on criticism i think
1: yeah i think i think that happened because films are really closer to me than books and even though books are incredibly close to me, film was the first love, and there's just more of a history with them. And uh, they, yeah, but I, I see, yeah. There, there, there's a couple. There's a one about Antonioni, and then one about Romer, which is very re- revealing. Um, which I was very worried about, honestly, I didn't know if I, if I, if I should do it. Uh, and I, the it was never published. I mean, it's a very, it's almost 10,000 words. So I knew no one would publish it. So, uh, it was just for the book. And I think I had to go over it a lot and change things. And, uh, Though I was just talking about this with someone in Highlight. I was talking to a friend or I wrote about a friend and I did send it to him before I published it to see if he would be okay. But I haven't done that in in every case. Um, So, yeah, I, I just, there's something, you know, we, I think also because you watch, you can watch films with other people that that's why they're much more connected to people in my memory and books. I mean, you can read books out loud to people, but it's, it's kind of not the same thing and you, you don't get the whole medium at once, but films are, are easier to share and it's, it's a very strange sharing because you're both sitting there silently and there's a film on, um,
2: I think that's right. And you, you, you even, you even bring that up in see what I see, uh, talking about, you know, trying to share a book with friends, uh, which is something that you've done with me. Um, and it is difficult. It, 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 you know, it's not a thing that's easily accomplished um, in, in films it you know, you sit together for an hour and a half or two hours and then mm-hmm. you have that shared experience, but with a book, you know, it takes weeks, sometimes months. Um, and then at the end, unless you're reading in tandem, uh, there's always that disconnect. You know, I read this thing two years ago and you just read it. And so, uh, <laughs> your impressions are much fresher than mine. And yeah, I, I, I can, un- I can fully understand that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And to circle, uh, back to your book, um, I want, I, the end piece seems like a really great summation to the whole, the whole, the 101st, uh, piece, which is about uh, writing. But I mean, really, uh. The whole book, for me, is about is about writing and the act of writing, and it almost seems like a diary of a writer, not to say you, but of someone who is a writer. Um, And there's a lot of questioning throughout the book and in the last piece as well about the type of writing that so dominates our day uh and we've had many emails about this over the years um you know the type the type of writing that dominates today is almost like uh oil painting representation before the before impressionism with your you know the standard realist new yorker story It, it it just doesn't seem to do to to do for the time that, that we live in, and so I was wondering, you know, do radical times call for radical forms? Uh, what do you What do you think about that? And well, I and I, I think do- your book does. You know, th- these are m- much more radical forms than people are used to.
2: I hope so. Because I, I think that the form is extremely important. I, I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how you can do more than you know just kind of didactic writing if you're writing in a mode that has been dominant for almost a century now or over a century now. Um, you know I don't know how you can break people out of their way of thinking um, simply through the subject of your writing. I think the form really has a very important part to play and specifically with correction. Again, you know, the form of these pieces was born um, in fact, partly out of my own schedule, which was very full at the time I was teaching five classes. And so I wanted to be able to keep writing, but I knew I wouldn't be able to devote much time to my writing. And so this, this form suggested itself. Um, There are no paragraph breaks. Often, there are a few sentence breaks, um, and this was a way for me to streamline the process, to to make everything to to reduce the number of decisions I would have to make in the course of writing something. Um, and my thought actually was was going back to uh, the, the the group Wires' uh, first couple of albums, uh, Pink Flag and Chairs Missing. Um are these these amazing albums that have uh, so many songs on them because one of the things that they did that I admired so much, at wire, is uh, essentially they would get their idea, the idea of the song out, and then the song would be over. there was no there was no repetition. Um, it didn't adopt that kind of you know course, Chorus verse chorus verse chorus verse. It didn't have that kind of structure. Instead, it might have a verse and no chorus, and then the end, uh, or uh, several choruses with you know one verse interspersed. In, in any case, they they had this um, this idea that you know a minute was fine for a pop song. That that was more than enough time. You didn't need to drag it on for four or five minutes. And I took mm-hmm. I, I tried to take that same attitude towards my writing, which is you know, I can get this idea out in less than two pages. And so I probably should, Uh, there's no reason for it to be elaborated, um, and made more and more Baroque. Um, Mm -hmm. and for me, at least that was a very different approach because I think, I I think my longer work tends to be very, (laughs) tends to be very Baroque, um, at least from my perspective. Uh, and so, you know, writing this book correction, uh, I wanted to, just kind of get back to basics. You know, here's a story. Let me tell it as simply as possible. Uh, and mm-hmm. once it's told I'm done and that's it. the end.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of breakdown, but with that, I mean, there's a lot of breakdowns at the end where, I mean, we were talking of Lydia, Lydia Davis. I was thinking of her at times when I read the book, um, that, I mean this is def this book is not a these aren't traditional flash fiction pieces where there is a uh, epiphany ending for a character the, these and you know these these are born of 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 our time how fragmented and and, and maddening it is and and you also in the acknowledgments you acknowledged the Washington Post, many journalists whose work was invaluable in composing correction. Can you say a little about that?
2: Absolutely, I I think um, I I wanted to be, I think the Washington Post is in the acknowledgments because its reporting was very important to the book um, and very important for a a lot of different reasons, but principally because uh, I was reading it, you know, day after day, like, like many other people. And uh, so a a lot of the ideas of the stories came from that, Um, you know, reading the newspaper, having these facts and information uh, to then chew over for the rest of the day. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, i I don't think that I don't think that the pieces are really playing with an article in a newspaper as a form. Um, although I think probably some of them do do take up some of the tropes of journalism. Um, but I do appreciate one of the things that I did make use of. Is that you know when you write an article about a current event, um, there is there isn't that epiphany, you know there there isn't really a a conclusive end to it because it's not a thing that has ended and so um, so you're forced to kind of struggle with that ending, you know it, it is a it's an ending that will be inconclusive it's an ending that will be even possibly disturbing in the sense that you know, you, you you want to see what comes next. You're you're not able to be satisfied with that one article or that one piece of story. Um, I like that. I like that effect. I like that feeling. Uh, and I hope I recreated that in at least some of the texts. Mm. Yeah. And you you did speak about um, you spoke about the very last piece in the book. Um, yes, the 101st. And so I just wanted to mention um, that the idea of, and I think I encountered this in Borges, in Jorge Luis Borges's essays, but uh, in any case, I, I don't, I can't uh, attest to its uh, its truthfulness, but um, what I'd read was that the thousand nights and a night the idea was that the thousand nights, the, the, the number one thousand was this was this um, was this number that one could not conceive of. It is a thing that is so large we have no real scale for it. And then the one night added on at the end was was kind of um, an idea of gesturing towards infinity. So we have this huge number that we can't even conceive of, and then one extra on top of that. And so I I wanted to do the same thing. Um but I thought again, you know, I don't have that much ambition. I'm not going to be able to write a thousand and one, and so I thought of like joke books, you know, 101 jokes, um, mm-hmm. and so uh, that was my idea. And so the 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 last one is that kind of gesture towards infinity, uh, or um, maybe just um, I don't know the 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 kind of worst joke in the book.
1: Yeah, but and then it 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 kind of sums up a lot of what was going on too, and. You know, name checks, Wittgenstein, with which he's made many appearances in these pages. Uh, but yeah, but also the, the, the you know teaching writing versus writing versus. Mm-hmm. I mean the, the the book is the last piece is so meta in in that it says if if one writes. you're questioning if one writes a book when one could have written an article. (laughs) And isn't this the genesis of most books? Uh, A single idea that then gets elaborated upon. I thought that really spoke to the whole spectrum and what you were getting at um, over the course of the whole book.
2: I think that's right. I mean, I I think that... um... The problem that I have with with so much of the fiction that I read that that I never, you know, I, I never think of again after reading it, is mm. that it is this very obvious elaboration on something very simple. And I prefer the simple thing, as I think many people would. Um, you know, the the elaboration can be really beautiful, but when mm. it's done to meet the market, when it's done to kind of make it palatable to uh, the publishing system in place in this country at this time, then it's not so beautiful. Then it seems to me exploitative in, in a way for, for, for example, um, that my understanding of auto fiction again is, is incomplete, but my understanding of auto fiction is that it's, it's exploitative. It, you know, it is a way of saying this book is very close to the author's life. Don't you want to read about this author's life?
1: Kind of a, uh... A reverse osmosis of the James Fry <laughs> debacle <Yes>. years ago <laughs> we we've, we've come very far in fourteen or fifteen years
2: in some so ways, that. yes <laughs> so and um for some reason, that made me think of uh, this this quote which uh, I wanted to bring up uh, from your essay, uh, Highlight, mm-hmm. which you m- mentioned earlier. Uh, You're describing your discussions of Cormac McCarthy uh, with the friend that you talked about earlier, uh, and you write, We'd insert ourselves in the story, even if we didn't mean to. That is, we did with literature what it can rarely do for young people studying it in school, play life experience both against and within it. And what else but art, displaying characters like themselves, makes people question their own morality so vociferously, as it doesn't indemnify their life choices, but simply stands as a mythical portal. If light, life teaches life, art teaches hindsight. And I love that thought because I do teach writing, and um, and because I often see in in criticism as well a tendency to to want to draw a lesson from one's reading um, that I think is. deleterious uh, to the reader and and also to the written work Um, because I I think it leads to less interesting thinking and reading but the reason why I love that quote from your book is that it all hinges on that last word on hindsight and it seems to me that that is the proper way of thinking about one's relationship to written uh, to to literature and and maybe also for that matter to to art uh, is that kind of like um, you you experience the artwork and then you you almost reorganize your memories around what you've perceived in that artwork. Um, but I wondered if if you could tell if if you could talk about what you were thinking in writing that passage.
1: Yeah, I think I. Uh... There was this Hugh Kenner quote. I don't know if it came to me before I wrote that, but it was something like the the most important part of the of a book is what happens in the five minutes or what, what happens after you finish the book. Um, and th- there is a, a sense of that how, and I've been seeing it in, Gerald Murnane, who we've both read, and and this new newer to me, Ricardo Piglia, who's the, whose the diaries have uh, a three volumes c- came out in the past few years um, of kind of you know living in yeah you read and then you kind of mark your life with with the art you experience and it it, it, it's not something you know like a a guiding even though that's the word that comes to me first it's something more mysterious but but it's it's there it doesn't stop you know it's it, it can't be I, there's no ideology behind it. That, that's why all these things about, you know, reading Proust in the era of Trump, and now yeah. it's reading Proust in the era of post-Trump, I, I don't understand these things. Yeah. Uh, th- these markers, this was, you know, he was president th- a couple months ago. Um. It, it's more uh, about You know as we change and grow up the art takes on different things and some of it you know we grow out of and and never go back to and then there are those things that you think well this is no big deal like you thought about lydia davis and and i thought that about christine scott and lutz uh you know and then few years later you go back to it and the, and there's more you know as you as you grow up and you see more of life you <laughs> you you want different things and different things speak to you so it's it, you know it's there's something it, it's very difficult to talk about it you know to even even to put it into the words of essays, which I think I've tried to do much more than that lately, but it I, I don't I, I, I don't know if I can. Um, you know it's it's these secret times that one has with oneself, and you know, maybe not a lot of people can under can understand them, but you know, here and there, you you'll run into people that kind of get you or, or get the way you you map your life. But it's there's no guidebook for for this kind of thing. It's I guess it's what Stephen Moore w- was talking about when he you know there was something about uh, I can't even remember what he said, but he said something nice in the introduction. Uh, you know about living, living with a work of art, in the old sense, um, in in the Bell letter sense, maybe you know from Romantic times, but we're we're in a, such a different time that that's why it's I try to keep it a secret, but you know <laughs> we're talking a little bit about it. So maybe that's a good point to end on.
2: I think so. I I don't know how one could improve on on a a secret place created by reading. (laughs) A secret place. Thank you so much uh, for talking with me, Greg.
1: Yes, thank you, Gabe. This was great.
0: Thank you for listening to the Full Stop Podcast. You can support Full Stop at patreon.com backslash Mag. And always find a ton of reviews, essays, and interviews at www.full-stop.net. We'll see you next time.